Well, Jesus Christ, you have no rival. Jesus Christ, you have no equal. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are the head of this church. We declare it today. What you say goes. How you want things done goes. Holy Spirit, fill us with hearts to listen and to humble ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. I pray right now, as you command us to, we would just cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. You are compassionate and merciful towards us. And so whatever distractions, whatever things have happened this week, may we just commit those to you right now in an act of humility to say, Jesus, I can't carry this. Jesus, this is distracting me today. I cast my cares on you because you care for me. And fill us with your peace, with your attentiveness, with your spirit, with your humility, with your teachability, God, to be refreshed, to be refreshed and convicted anew by the living and active word of God. And so, Lord, have your way. Guard my mouth. Say what you want to say and get all the glory in this place. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word in front of you, just slide up your hand. One of our ushers is coming by right now. We want to put a copy of God's Word in your lap so you can continue to follow along, verse by verse, line by line. And it's on page 475 in those Bibles that are being handed out. Matthew 9, 35 to 38. And so, a little recap of how we got here. Right now, we're in the coming to the end of our series called Discovering Hope, and it's looking at the portrait of what a church that is alive or walking in Christ is supposed to look like. And so we started out thus far, first we kicked it off looking at our mission to make disciples from Matthew 28, and then we moved on to the motive for that mission, which is a growing love for God and one another from the great commandment. And now over the last four weeks, we've been looking at what's the method, the six distinctives that Christ has given his church to be built up in him and that he promises to bless that church when they are present. And so we started out with fervent prayer. Then we moved to bold preaching. Then last week we looked at true and passionate worship. And then as an overflow of that, we come to today. The overflow of a life of worship is a life of courageous witness. A life of worship is a life of witness. And our big idea that's going to set the trajectory for today is just simply this. A church alive in Christ will be courageous in its witness for Christ. A church that is alive in Christ will be courageous in its witness for Christ. And you say, why is it so important that Jesus emphasizes this to be in his church? Well, Jesus tells us the problem right in this text. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Let's, let's break that down. 
There are many people desperate to hear the gospel. There are many people that Christ is ready to call to himself when they hear it proclaimed. But there are fewer and fewer people going to proclaim it to them. There are fewer and fewer people going to proclaim it to them. You say, that's a big statement, Pastor. You got something to back that up? Yeah, of course I do. Let's look at some stats from July of 2019 this year. You'll see it on the screen. According to Christianity Today, latest stats, get this, 79%, almost 80%, 8 out of 10, unchurched people say they would engage in a faith conversation if they're asked. 79%, let that sink in, of unchurched people, people lost, dying, and going to hell, say they would engage in a faith conversation if they were asked. Now, take that into your context. Eight out of 10 of your family members, eight out of 10 of your coworkers, eight out of 10 of your classmates, eight out of 10 of your neighbors would engage if they're asked. Here's the issue. But only 39% of Christians have shared the gospel in the past six months. That's a pretty wide gap. What that means is that over 60% of Christians, over six out of 10 so-called professing Christians are not telling our world about Jesus even on an annual basis. It means, put it in our context, it means almost two out of three of us in this room have not shared our faith in the last year with a non-believer. And the result is the church corporately and individually as Christians, we are failing in our mission to make disciples. We are failing in our mission to make disciples and people are dying and going to spend eternity in hell never having heard the gospel. And this is happening on our watch. And the truth is this that I pray we get stirred up with today. The dying world we live in, loved ones, needs a courageous church to pursue them. The dying world we live in needs a courageous church to pursue them. And here in our text, we're gonna see two truths we must live by, loved ones, corporately and individually. If we are to live lives of courageous witness for Christ and see him draw others to himself through it. Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. The harvest is plentiful, the laborers few. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. 
Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Well, the first thing we see here from these first two verses is this. To live a life of courageous witness, you must possess Christ's motive for witness, compassion. To live a life of courageous witness, you must possess Christ's motive for witness, compassion. And the question we're confronted with from verses 35 and 36 is this. A life of witness is burdened with, help them, Lord, is my heart for the lost. A life of courageous witness is burdened with, help them, Lord, is my heart for the lost. Let's get some context. It's about 30 AD, which means Jesus is about 30 years old, and he's at the start of his teaching ministry, and he's ministering in Galilee with his disciples. He's just finished calling all 12. He's getting them ready to send out on their first mission to Israel in the Galilee area. So right now, he's, disciple, or he's ministering in Galilee with them. So here's a picture of the area of Galilee. Now, most scholars believe it's about 200 towns and villages at this point with, an, a, with a population of approximately 3 million people. And notice what Jesus is doing. Look at verse 35. Go to the text. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, all 200 of them approximately this time, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, you say, what's that synagogue? What's all that about, that he's going into these places and teaching them? Well, here's a picture of an ancient synagogue in Galilee. And so what would happen is the rabbi of that town or village, each town would have one, and the rabbi of that village, he would get up and he would teach God's word, the Old Testament, to the people. And the people would sit around the sides, and then, and then they would be exhorted in Scripture and then spend time in prayer together. And so Jesus is going into these synagogues, the places of teaching, And he's teaching them. But notice this. He's not just teaching the Old Testament. What else does it say he's doing? Just go to the text. He went throughout all the cities and villages teaching and what? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The Greek word there for proclaiming is caruso, which means to preach or herald. To herald. And what's he heralding? Of course, the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel in flesh is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Love that. Love it. And so what is the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ. How God has now made himself flesh come to earth to live and die for our sin and pay the penalty for our sin upon the cross and then be ro- raised again three days later. And Jesus is teaching them from the Old Testament how all of the Old Testament points to that happening in him. He is the fulfillment of it. And so here he is proclaiming the gospel, how he's come to earth to save sinners. But notice what else he's doing, threefold. So he's teaching in the synagogues. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And what else is he doing? Go to the text and healing every disease and affliction. He's not only teaching, but he's healing every disease, every affliction of the people as they came to him. Now, why does he do this? 
Because he's using, as he gave the authority of the apostles to do so, he's using the healings to authenticate who he was as the son of God. The healings weren't the point. The healings were supposed to direct the hearts and minds of the people to him. A sign, remember, a sign from God is always meant to point us back to God. It's never for the glory for ourselves. The signs, we're not supposed to worship signs. We're not supposed to make that the focus. Christ is the focus. And that's what he's doing. He's healing to authenticate who he was as the son of God. And show them their need ultimately for spiritual healing. But notice what happens in verse 36. Go to the text. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Just think about that. That is right there. You could circle that. That is one of the greatest verses in all of scripture that emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. Anyone who says that Jesus was just some figment spirit that didn't fully become man and fully God at the same time hasn't read that. He's filled with compassion for the lost. And you see, as Jesus sees all of the crowds, by the way, the word for crowds there, it's not like, hey, here's five people. It means a mighty throng of people. A huge multitude of people clamoring, clamoring to get to him. What is he doing? He's like, no thanks, I'm too busy. No thanks, my fear of man's going to take over and I won't proclaim it. No thanks. What's he doing? What's he doing? He's having compassion. Compassion. Now, just so we're all clear of what compassion means, because there's a lot of twisting in that today. Here's what God says compassion means, so let's go with that. Okay? Greek word for compassion means this. He had pity. And his heart, it's the word used when your heart goes out to someone from your deepest inner parts. It's not just this. Oh yeah, I feel really bad. You're all lost and you're all sick and you're coming. I feel really bad. Okay, let's go to lunch, disciples. Switch the channel. Uh Uh-uh. Go to the next task. Stay on our agenda. Nope. He's in, it means he's in agony. Imagine that. The son of God is in agony over the state of these people that he loves so much and that he created for his glory. This isn't just an emotional reaction. This is a physical reaction. Reaction, And I was trying to think, like, talk about a crucible of affliction and prep this week. I was like, how do you, like, illustrate the heart of God on this? And the thing that came closest, you ever saw someone that you love so much suffering? And in pain? And they're just crying out, help me. Help me. You ever, you ever see that? Or even worse, maybe some of us parents in here, you see a prodigal child walking away and they don't even know the danger they're in, that their soul is on its way to hell for eternity. 
Do you ever feel that burden? That's the closest we can get to of what Jesus is feeling. As he sees these crowds, live in the text, picture it. You see the crowds coming. They're just clamoring for you. They're desperate. And yet they have no idea that they're in way more danger and they need way more spiritual healing than physical. And he sees them. And why was he in agony? Keep reading the text. Verse 36. He had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless there means to be weary. They were weary. They were worn out. They were distressed. They've been cast down by the world. Cast down by the world. It means that they were completely helpless in being able to save themselves. Completely helpless in being able to save themselves or do anything of their own strength to get out of the dire situation they were in. Just like, I love the metaphor here, just like a sheep would be without a shepherd. Now think about that. Why would the Holy Spirit inspire Matthew to write that picture right now? Well, let's think about that. Question, what happens to a sheep without a shepherd? Without a shepherd, as one commentator put, I love this, without a shepherd, sheep are vulnerable to any attack. you got no chance. None. You are vulnerable to any attack and you can't even find food for yourself. You have to be led. Sheep without a shepherd points to people who are in great danger and without the resources to escape from it. Throngs of people in great danger and without the resources to escape from it. Why is he in agony? He's not in agony primarily about their physical state. But he's in agony over the spiritual danger and desperation they are. And you see, notice this. Some of you may be like, well, I'm not coming to Jesus. I'm too bad of a person. And, and you know what? He's going to condemn me. And he's just this wicked judge up there who's ready to smack me with a holy smackdown. Listen, listen. Notice how he looks on them, not with condemnation, but with compassion. Just like Jesus is looking at each of you and me today. Not with condemnation, with compassion. I love you. I created you. I want you. See, Jesus' agony as he looks out on the crowd and he sees their physical and spiritual desperation. I can imagine he would... This agony entails something like this. Loved ones, you're weary and worn out. He looks on them, sees them, desperately getting, trying to get to them. He says, you're weary and worn out from trying to run after the things of this world you think are going to satisfy you, that you think are going to bring you salvation, that you think are going to deliver you, but you will only ever be satisfied in me, ever. And your religious leaders those who I want to shepherd you, the leaders of Israel, they have failed in shepherding you and teaching you about me. But I love you. I created you. And I will shepherd you perfectly. And I see you hurting. Right now, I don't know who this is for in this room. Hear the word of the Lord today. He sees you hurting. 
He sees what you're trying to hide from everybody else. He sees the suffering. He sees the pain. And as Jesus looks out on all this crowd, he says, I see that you're in great danger and you don't even know it. You don't know the half of it. You think it's all on the physical plane. But your spiritual healing is more desperately needed than anything. I created you for my glory and it's not my desire that any of you should perish. If you're here and you've never made the decision to follow Jesus Christ, you hear the word of the Lord for you today. It is not his desire that you would perish in hell for eternity. But that is where you're going without him, loved one. This is the agony that's driving Jesus. Now think about this. Take it into today's context. There are literally billions of people living in distress Harassed and helpless. They are living weary and worn out and they're suffering and they're completely helpless to save themselves and they are desperately trying to find peace and satisfaction and salvation from the things of this world that can't give it. They're going to sex. They're going to drugs and we've even legalized it for them to help them. They're going to sex, they're going to drugs, they're going to money, they're going to jobs, they're going to grades, and on the outside they can look all polished, but on the inside they are desperately seeking what can only be found in Jesus Christ. And Jesus looks on them in agony, he goes, I look past your car, I look past your stuff, I look past your persona, and I'm in agony over where your heart is. Jesus is agonizing over them too. The question is, are you and me? Or are we part of the 39% or the 41 that hasn't said anything to them in the last year about the Savior? See, a life of witness is burdened with help them, Lord, They look out on the crowd and say, help them. You look at that person who's in the line at Tim Hortons and you say, help them, Lord. Is your heart filled with compassion for the lost? How about this? Take it into your context, your coworkers. Think of those coworkers you're about to sit with tomorrow. How about this? Your classmates, students. How about your family members that are lost? Prodigal children, brothers, sisters. Parents, how about your neighbors in your neighborhood? I love the fall. Everyone's out raking leaves. What a great opportunity. See, here's what we have to remember. David Platt said this just stunningly. He said, the kind of courageous witness that Scripture calls for will not be a reality in our lives until we see the lost as Jesus sees them. Check. Precious, loved, hurting, lost, and in desperate need of him. And I think if we're honest, this was very convicting for me this week, most, if not all of us, will admit that often we're just really good at having more compassion for ourselves than anyone else. 
especially the lost. We see the lost around us, and quite often it's more about what we can do to stay in our comfort zone and stay on our agenda and schedule. How to, it's more about keeping things convenient for us instead of stepping out to share the gospel with them and engage them. You know, it's more about staying on our schedule. Meanwhile, Christ, think about this, Christ is agonizing over that person you and I just walked past and didn't give a second look to. He's agonizing over his creation that he loves and gave his life for. Are you and I He's agonizing over that very person that you didn't want to be bothered with acknowledging because it was more important to fulfill your duties for the day. He's agonizing over the person you didn't engage and interact with because you used the excuse that you're an introvert. No, no, no. If you're in Jesus Christ, you are a laborer. You are, you are a son or child of God. A daughter a son of the king, you are a laborer in his harvest. Or maybe we ignore them all together just so we could stay comfy and not have to confront our fear of man. Just ignore them. Just back down from the conversation that God has literally set you up with. What will they think? What will it mean? What will it mean? Here's what it'll mean. It'll mean they'll hear the greatest truth of all time and have a chance to be saved. That's what it'll mean. And nothing else will matter. Your job that you want to cling to so much isn't going to matter when you stand before Christ. And you may say this, you may see this and hear that exhortation. You may say this, well, how do I grow in possessing God's heart? If you're like me, I read that this week and I'm just like, I have to grow in this because God, I am not there. I need your help. For this level of compassion over the lost, help me. And so how do we grow? We see three things all throughout God's word. Number one, we possess the heart of God through his word when we understand his heart. The word of God helps us understand and it displays the heart of God. Romans 12, 2 says this, do not be conformed to this world. The world will have you just pass on by. It's me first in the world. It's going to have you pass on by to do your own thing. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, as we grow in God's word, we understand God's heart. We abide through the word. Why? Because God's word displays his heart. Our mind is renewed. Our heart is refreshed by the living and active word of God, Hebrews 4.12, that exposes the innermost attitudes of our heart and gives us the Lord's. So we possess God's heart increasingly through his word. Secondly, through prayer, we request his heart. So we read God's word and we see the exhortation from God and we ask him now for his heart for these things. We pray God's word. I love Matthew 7, 7. Jesus says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. He's talking about the will of God. He's not like, well, great, I can ask. First, I'll get my Porsche and then when my neighbors ask about it, then I'll tell them about Jesus. He's not, 
It's like, I'm not talking about patting your pride with this. He's like, you ask for my will. And there's nothing that blesses the heart of God more that we see all throughout scripture that he's not ready to throw all the resources of heaven to you on than asking for his heart for the lost. Asking you, it will be given to you. You see God's heart here. Say, God, give me that. Give me that compassion. I don't have it. He says, yes. Yes, I will. Give me your heart for the people in my workplace. Give me your heart for the people in my family. Give me your heart for my neighbors. Give me your heart for strangers at the grocery store. Give me your heart, Jesus Christ, John 3.30, you must increase and I must decrease. Give me more of you and less of me. So we possess, we grow in possessing the heart of God through his word as we understand his heart and we're renewed in that And then through prayers, we request his heart as we read about it and we're convicted by it. And then here, through faith, we live out his heart. We live out his heart. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, quite simply says this, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith through proclamation of his gospel and the demonstration of it on our lips and in our lives by his power for his glory. We walk by faith. When God gives that opportunity, it's like, Lord, I don't feel like I have the words, but I'm gonna trust you right now. You've teed this one up. I'm gonna trust you. Lord, I don't feel like I have what it takes. Lord, I'm scared. I'm afraid of what this could mean for our relationship with this person. I'm afraid of what could mean for my job, for my family. But Lord, give me that spirit, 2 Timothy 1, 7, of power, love, and self-control that you promise is in me. And that is the love that compels me in compassion to step out in faith and boldly, courageously declare the message that can save them. Give me that faith. Give me that courage. And loved ones, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. I need that too. So question, question. You see this right here. Three things, how we grow in possessing God's heart for the lost. What's your next step? What's your next step? Maybe some of you got to get in the word of God. and There'll be more God time one-on-one books coming. We had a big rush on them last week. Praise the Lord, we're all out. And so they're coming in a couple weeks and we'll have them there for you. But there's reading plans back there. Maybe for some of you, it's just getting in God's word and abiding with him to start understanding his heart and then start praying, Lord, give me your heart. Here, 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 here. Here's a great prayer to start you out with. Lord, give me your heart for, put a name in there. Lord, give me your heart for my children so I won't be frustrated with them. I won't see them as an interruption, but I will see them as an investment. Lord, give me your heart for my spouse that I'd stop being critical and start proclaiming the beauties of the gospel to them over their lives. Lord, give me your heart for my coworker, my students, if you're a teacher, my students in my class. Like, insert it. What's your next step? See, to live a life of courageous witness, you must possess Christ's motive for witness, compassion. And from that, you must pray for Christ's method for witness, laborers, laborers. And the question we are confronted from verses 37 and 38 is this. A life of witness pleads, send them, Lord. They feel the burden and they're led to plead to the Lord, send them. Am I pleading for laborers? Am I pleading for laborers? Look at verses 37 and 38. 
Then he, being Jesus, said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, because of that truth, right there, therefore, pray earnestly. Not half-heartedly, not, well, I'll get around to it. Maybe I'll pray for laborers next week. Pray earnestly, with urgency, to the Lord of the harvest, to do what? To send out laborers into his harvest. See, after looking out on the crowds and being filled with compassion for seeing them come to salvation in him, out of the life of deprivation, out of the life of slavery to sin, Jesus then turns to the disciples and he tells them why living lives of courageous witness are so important. Here it is. You see it right out of the text. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are, say it, say it, it are few. Over 60% not engaging in it. The laborers are few. See, the harvest, what's the picture Jesus is using? I love how Jesus uses pictures and illustrations for this. I'm not smart enough to understand it without him. Christ is using the picture of a farmer's field like this, right here. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? There's the harvest field. The wheat ready to come in. The grain that is ripe for gathering. And he's using this picture right here that you see on that screen to represent the multitude, hear this, the multitude of people who are ripe and ready to be gathered into the kingdom of heaven. Regardless of who you or I think will respond to the gospel, we're not the Lord of the harvest. Who made you and I the Lord of the harvest? He's the Lord of the harvest. You say, well, that guy's too, he's too far gone. That guy's too hard. He's really antagonistic to me. Who made you the Lord of the harvest? Well, that person will never come. There's one Lord of the harvest. Using this picture to represent the multitude that is ripe. And the laborers, notice this, the laborers are the workmen. The workmen who bring in the harvest. Who's that? Followers of Christ who are willing to courageously go to proclaim the gospel and see others come to faith. And verse 38, as you see this, as a result of this lack, he says, therefore, that's a key word, circle it every time you see it in your Bibles, connect it to the verse in front of it. Therefore, because of the lack of labors, Jesus tells his disciples to pray earnestly. Not when you think of it, not when you're just half-hearted. He says, pray earnestly. If you're going to pray about something, pray about this, because this field is full, and it is ripe, and people are dying every day not hearing it, so if you're going to pray about anything, it's about this. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, God himself, to send out more labors. Now, notice this. You know, it just blew my mind this week in preparation. Think about this. Out of all the things Jesus could have said, hey, I'm getting you ready for your mission, getting everything together. Here's what you're going to need to be successful. There's a lack of labor, so program earnestly. Get the most attractive programs going, because that's going to attract a lot of people. No, he doesn't say that. He didn't say, hey, there's a lack of labor, so earnestly produce the resources to get them. Work on your own tactics and your own strength. What does he say? Do things for your own abilities? Doing man-made strategies? No, what does he say? He said, pray. Stop programming and start praying. I'm taking you out of your own strength. Pray, and don't just pray. Pray earnestly. Pray urgently. Plead 
for men and women. That's what that word earnestly means. Urgently, you're making an urgent appeal to the Lord of the harvest. Send them, Lord. Send me. Send them. Send men and women to be raised up and sent out from this church, from this workplace, from this city, from our nation, from our schools. Send them, Lord. I pray that Hope Ottawa would be a church that is just sending out laborers. Sending out laborers. This is kingdom mentality. Sure, we're going to want to shepherd you faithfully while you're here, but if God's doing this, get out of here and get in the field. Just get in the field. Love you. I'll miss you. But get in the field. Kingdom mentality, loved ones. Go forth into the harvest to proclaim the gospel to a world that is facing eternal death and hell without it. And why pray? So why does Jesus choose this out of anything else? Because the harvest is the Lord's. Your strategies, my strategies, they're not going to work. The harvest is the Lord's, and he alone knows the state of it. He alone knows the state of that heart that you think is too far gone for the gospel. He alone knows the state of it. Not you, not me. He alone is the means for sending people out. And notice this, the Lord of the harvest, what does that mean? He alone is the means for bringing people in. We are just the laborers he has chosen to do his work through as we boldly proclaim the gospel to those around us in the power of the Spirit. Yet notice this. You say, well, it's all up to Jesus, so why do I have to do anything? Because he's made you and I laborers. That's his method. He gives us the privilege to be used. And yet, in that, don't go on our own strength. We are completely dependent upon him, and earnest prayer is the declaration of that dependence. Pray earnestly. We pray, you'll see it on the screen if I can sum it up. We pray because God sends them out to the harvest and we pray because God brings them in from the harvest. There it is. God sends them out, God brings them in. And so a life of witness pleads, send them, Lord. Are you pleading for more laborers? Because here's what we have to realize. You ever notice this? Pretty simple logic. Laborers aren't effective if they're not in the field. No harvest is coming in. If the laborers aren't in the field, if they're so tied up in their own affairs, they're not in the field. And if you're a follower of Christ here, you say, okay, I can do that. I'll pray for everyone else to go. Eh, hold on. If you're a follower of Christ in this room, the answer to this prayer, you know what it is? You. You're the answer to the prayer. God saved you in response, in answer to this prayer. See, no follower of Christ is called to be a spectator, but is called to be a laborer, available, ready to respond, and stepping out in faith as the Lord directs our path and brings people around us to share the gospel. Hey, can I encourage you, loved ones? Don't complicate evangelism. Okay? If I could, if I could summarize evangelism, I'd say this. Be prayed up and then step up. Be prayed up. And then step up with the opportunities that God gives you. As you're driving into work, say, God, I'm a little bit scared. Give me your spirit of power and self-control. And if you bring someone in to share the gospel, help me to be faithful and right there in that moment. Declare what Jesus has done. In that moment. 
Don't make it complicated. Okay, well, I'll corner them at the water cooler, and I just got to make sure no one else is around, so I'll set up my coworkers for a screen. No, relax. Chill. Be prayed up and step up. When you're in the grocery store line, when you're in the parking lot, when you're at the daycare, when you're in the classroom, just be prayed up and step up. Don't complicate it. Remember, we depend on one message, the power of the gospel, and we depend on one power, the power of Christ, to be magnified in that moment. We don't, hey, can I summarize this? We don't need a big strategy. We just need big availability. We don't need a big strategy. We need big availability. Why? Because we have a big God. So what is the harvest field that God has put you in to gather? Know this. Every single one of us has one. What's yours? Maybe it's, what's this for you? As you look at this picture on the screen, what's this? Your workplace right here. Maybe it's your family right here. What's your harvest field? Your classroom? Your dorm? What is it? Your friends, your neighborhood, where's that field for you? Because it's there. Because you're in it. See, loved ones, Jesus tells us in John 4, 35, the fields are white for harvest. That means they're ripe. And God is ready to gather them in. There are many in this city who are his. But will you respond in faith as a laborer to step out and then pray earnestly for others to be sent out? in living lives of courageous witness that possess the motive of Christ, compassion? And will you pray for God's method, more laborers? See, this is the distinction of a church of courageous witness and a church that is alive in Christ.